When I was a college student, my grandmother made these wonderful ginger snap cookies. And she would mail them to me, and we went through those things, my roommates and I, like hotcakes. And I am Virginia-born, Virginia-bred, and so that was just part of Virginia cuisine, was having those ginger snap, homemade ginger snap cookies. And then came time to go to graduate school, and I went to Fort Worth, Texas. And I was in my first semester there, been there about a month or so, and I went and ordered dinner one night from Jack in the Box, belovedly called by the seminary students, Barf in the Box, and uh, went there and was eating my dinner, and I saw something in my box there that I had never seen before. I didn't know what it was. And curiosity got the best of me, and so I decided to bite into it. And when I did, tears began to come to my eyes. My sinus passages opened up immediately. My tongue, mouth, throat began to burn, and I discovered by experience what a jalapeno pepper is. <laughs> I decided with my Virginia background that that was my first encounter with a jalapeno pepper, and it would be my last encounter with a jalapeno pepper. And so I judiciously stayed away from those the rest of the time I was in Texas. Folks, when people taste, if you will, of our lives, what do they taste? Do we have a sort of jalapeno pepper way about us that, you know, causes people to jump back and say, man, I don't know that I want to get a hold of their life anymore? Or do we have those grandma cookie way about us that people say, I want more of that? How do people respond when they taste of our lives? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, he began to outline to them what we've been looking at as the fruit of the Spirit. And if you'll turn with me there, Galatians chapter 5, and he gives to them the various fruits of the Spirit that we have been outlining over the last number of weeks together as we've gone through this passage. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And then last week we looked at faithfulness, the idea of faithfulness being that I am dependable, that I live out of a sense of biblical convictions, and that I am willing to take risk. We saw that faithfulness is not just sitting back and saying, well, I'm just going to faithfully serve the Lord and come and occupy my pew in the church every Sunday. It's rather the idea that I am willing to step out and take risk for Him, that a faithful faith is a risk-taking faith because I am living in faith in serving Him. And then we come to today's fruit of the Spirit, and these fruits are what the Holy Spirit of God automatically produces in us if we are living and walking with Jesus, and that is gentleness. Now, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. Galatians 5.23, that fruit of the Spirit gentleness, and then what we'll look at next week, self-control against such things, there is no law. Gentleness is God's controlled and carefully directed strength. Gentleness is God's control of us and carefully directed strength on His behalf. If you need surgery 
and you go see a surgeon, that surgeon is strong. He is strong in his knowledge about your Bible. I mean, about your, your body. I'll get it out in a minute. He is strong about knowing exactly how to perform the operation. But it is carefully directed strength. If it wasn't, it could kill you. But it has the ability to heal you and extend your life. That is the idea of the gentleness here. Strength, but carefully directed strength to work in people's lives. It takes more strength to hold my tongue than it does to run off at the mouth. It takes more strength to refrain from retaliating when I sense I've been wronged than to go on ahead and retaliate. It takes more strength to be forgiving than to hold a grudge. The power of this strength is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ when He was dying on the cross and He looked down at the people who were crucifying Him and spitted on Him and had whipped Him and were calling for His death and were enjoying what they were seeing. And He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. But you remember when Jesus was baptized, it says the Holy Spirit of God came upon him in the form of a dove. Why was the Spirit coming upon him? It was coming upon him to do far more than give us a nice story. The Spirit of God was coming upon Jesus so that as Jesus walked into hostility and faced hostility over and over again in his life, that he responded to that not with retaliation. He responded to that not by calling down the fire out of heaven that he could have called down and consumed them right on the spot. He rather responded with forgiveness, with restoration, and on the cross when he could have destroyed everybody that was at the foot of the cross in a split second, he rather gave them forgiveness. It was a forgiveness they didn't earn. It was a forgiveness that they didn't deserve. It was a forgiveness they weren't asking for, but it was a forgiveness that they desperately needed and it was a forgiveness that he filled with the Holy Spirit of God wanted to give and was compelled to forgive. And folks, when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we will want to forgive. We will be compelled to forgive. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we will walk away from retaliation. We will be delivered and freed up from retaliation. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, we won't walk around nursing our grudges and holding our grudges and licking our wounds. Rather, we will walk around talking about, yes, something tough happened to me, but Jesus set me free and Jesus healed me and Jesus has has delivered me, and I don't have to walk with all that bitterness and mess in my life. I can walk praising Him because of the gentleness that He produces in our lives. That is the idea of what He's talking about here. Now, this word gentleness is a difficult word to translate from the Greek language into our English. Let me give you several ideas. The first idea of this word is it means to be submissive to the will of God. In other words, the idea of being gentle here or being meek is that I am submitting to the will of God. It is an idea that the adjective that is drawn off of the Greek word here is an adjective that was used in that day to speak of taming an animal. And so it's the idea that God tames my spirit. Aristotle used this word and he said... Men, in, men need to be angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. So the first idea of this word gentle is that I am submissive to the will of God. Second, it is the means that I have a teachable 
and coachable spirit. Where we served prior to moving here in Chesapeake, we lived and ministered in an urban community, and Oscar Smith High School was the high school for the particular neighborhood we were in. And Oscar Smith has been to like four out of the last five state championship football games. They had a tremendous team. But I watched what the coach did with that team. He took young men out of the inner city who could have been in gangs and in all kinds of rough involvement, and he basically worked with them to take the energy they had, the strength that they had, and to channel it on a football field in the right direction. And guys that could have been in all kinds of trouble, the law were winning championships because of how they channeled their strength. And the whole thing was how teachable were they, how coachable were they. If they were willing to be coachable, if they were willing to be teachable, he could transform them into champions. If they weren't, they didn't make the team. And folks, the question for us is how teachable are we willing to be? So often we don't get very far with the Lord because we refuse to be teachable. And folks, the last place that in our life that we said to God by our actions and our attitudes, you can't teach me anymore, God, you can't coach me anymore, that's the last place that we stop growing. That's the place that we stop being used of God. But if we're willing to say to him every day, Lord, I am teachable, I am coachable, even if you got something brand new for me that I've never done in a place I've never been, I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to grow, I'm willing to be yours, I'm going to move with you in this, God. That's the idea of that gentleness and that fruit of the Holy Spirit. Third, it's the idea of being considerate. It means that we're not high-maintenance people. The people don't have to look at us and keep us happy all the time. It's a certain mildness in dealing with others and it transpires on the battlefield of hostility. That's when we have to be considerate. How do we manifest this? Number one, we don't go on the defensive when folks come at us. Man, that's the easy thing to do, what we want to do, but we don't go on the defensive too. We do not crave preeminence. How many times do we get upset because we don't get the attention that we think we should get and we deserve? We want the preeminence. Our satisfaction is supposed to come because Jesus gets the preeminence, not us. And finally, we don't have to always be the voice of authority in everything. Now, I want us to look at an example of this from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18 and verse 5, a guy by the name of Jonathan here. Let me paint the picture for you. Jonathan's dad, Saul is the king of Israel. And Jonathan, as his son, his firstborn son, is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. But there is a young man that comes on the scene whose name is David. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit or knotted to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And Jonathan took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David. Now what Jonathan's doing here is he is physically, symbolically saying, not only am I pledging my friendship to you, but I am recognizing that you are the guy that God is setting up to be the next king of Israel, not me, and I don't have a problem with it. 
Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now Saul's the king of Israel. He is moving towards the conclusion of his reign. He has been grooming and anticipating that his son Jonathan is now going to become the king of Israel when he passes off the scene. And this young man comes into his court named David. And David plays music extremely well. In fact, he will play his harp and soothe the nerves of the king. But David begins to go out into battle and he begins to demonstrate an unusual bravery and strategic sense when he is in battle about how to move troops and about how to fight. And so he begins to secure victory after victory after victory. And so the attention begins to move towards him. And when David walks into the royal court, Jonathan looks at him. The two of them become friends. And Jonathan reaches a place that Jonathan's loyalty and his friendship to David supersedes his desire to be king. And also when he looks at David, he realizes God's hand is on David. God is going to use David. God is raising David up to be the king, not me. And so in this very physical, visible illustration here, he basically takes his armament, places it on David, and by so doing is saying, I'm recognizing that you're going to be the next king of Israel. And I'm happy about that. I'm at peace about that. Well, he's happy and he's at peace about it, but as you get into the next few chapters, we will discover that his dad, Saul, is not a happy camper about this at all. In fact, Saul begins to be threatened by David because he realizes that he's becoming so popular. Saul begins to realize that not only is he becoming popular, the people's hearts are starting to move towards David to become their next king. He also begins to realize and to look at his own son, Jonathan, and to say, man, my son is even buying into this, and he is going to become the next king. And, and Jonathan's totally okay with that. In fact, he is supporting that. And so Saul becomes just filled with anger. He becomes filled with fear, and he becomes filled with jealousy. And so over in the 20th chapter, beginning with verse 20, this is how he responds to what is happening. He gets so angry with what's going on, chapter 20 and verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled now against Jonathan. His anger has now spilled from his own self. He was angry first with David. Now he's ticked off with his son and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, referring to David, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. In other words, he's saying, Jonathan, he's going to replace you on the throne. He's going to be king. Go get him, bring him in here. I'll see to it that we kill him so that you can be the king. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What's he done? But notice what happens, verse 33. Saul hurls his spear at his own son here to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. 
In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing, only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to this boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn because of, sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between your offspring and my offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan knew what it was to experience the presence of the Spirit in his life and to produce the gentleness in him. And the gentleness manifested itself in this way. Jonathan looked at David. He saw what God was calling David to become. And he realized that he was not going to end up on top. He wasn't going to be king. And he was okay with that. He was okay with the will of God. And then he wanted to do everything he could to support his friend. And you see, when the Spirit of God fills us and begins to produce this spiritual fruit of gentleness in us, we don't care who comes out on top anymore. We just care about the will of God being carried out. How much friction and busted up relationships happen in families, in churches, you name it, because we're all trying to be the one on top. And when the spiritual fruit of gentleness is produced in us, we don't care about being on top anymore. All we care about is the will of God being carried out. You see, when that fruit is produced in us, what we realize is Jesus is already on top. And as long as He's honored and He's glorified and His will is carried out, that's all that matters. It takes more grace to play second fiddle than it does first. Jonathan said, David, I see, I perceive, I understand what God is doing in your life and that God has promoted you to be the next king of Israel. And I'm not going to fight that. I'm not going to get in the way of that. I'm rather going to support that because I see the will of God. I understand the will of God. And I just want to see the will of God lived out. Saul was a whole different ball game. In fact, I didn't have time to go into it, but in the early chapters, God comes to Saul and basically says, Saul, 
I'm at work here and I'm promoting David. You need to keep your hands off of this, Saul. If you'll just keep your hands off of what I'm doing, you'll be okay. But Saul couldn't do that. Saul had to get enraged. He had to get filled with his jealousy. And folks, when we get filled with jealousy and anger and fear, it blinds us to what God's doing. We cannot see the will of God anymore. And sometimes when God begins to promote people around us that we really don't want to see promoted, when God begins to raise somebody else up for something that we wanted and we desired and we thought we had a right to, we get filled with fear, we get filled with jealousy, we get filled with anger, and when we do that, we cannot see God's work anymore. All we see is all the conflicted emotions that we have and we miss what God is doing. Some folks have missed the will of God because of their jealousy and their fear. Missed totally what God was at work doing. Jonathan, on the other hand, saw God's work and he says, I'm not going to get in between God and what he's doing here. I'm going to facilitate what God is doing. And the other thing he said is, you know something? David's my friend and my friendship with David is more important to me than whether I get promoted or not. Folks, how many of us have lost good friendships if we were really honest about it because of our stinking pride? We have lost good friendships because of our pride. Get the pride out of the way, and we can go places in a friendship. Yesterday, I was sitting with a group of guys in our jail ministry, and one of the guys said, you know, we men so often, we just got to have our bad attitudes, and look where it gets us. Look where it gets us. When you tasted of Saul's life, you tasted the bitterness of anger and jealousy and fear. And when you tasted of Jonathan's life, you tasted the wonderful flavors of peace, concern, and the strength of the joy of the Lord. And so where are we in all this? When people taste our lives, what do they taste? Do they taste the junk that Saul had going on in his life, or do they taste what Jonathan had going on in his life? The peace of God, the will of God, and the joy of the Lord. The Bible says in the book of Acts that about 40 days or so after Jesus was crucified, it has an interesting phrase. It says, a great number of the priests believed on Jesus. Now, these are the same guys 40 to 50 days earlier that have been calling for his blood, and it says they believed on Jesus. Why would they do that? I think the reason they did that is that day when they were crucifying him, Jesus opened his mouth and he looked at him and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They were spewing the sourness of their own animosity at him, and he gave them the flavor of his love. And they tasted of his life, and it hit them in the head and hit them even more in the heart. And about 40 days later, they said, that guy we crucified, he's going to be our Savior. We want him. If Jesus had just spewed out anger on their anger, they wouldn't have wanted him. But when he gave them his love... He said, that's what we want. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to walk with you in such a way that you produce within us 
this spiritual fruit of gentleness. God, we cannot do it alone. Our natural inclination is to want to retaliate, to want to nurse grudges, to be unforgiving, to want to use our mouth to talk people down. But Lord, your spirit within us will enable us to forgive. Your spirit within us will enable us, Lord, to speak life into people's lives. Your spirit at work within us, Lord, will keep us from retaliating, will help us to build people up instead of tearing them down. Lord, your spirit within us will help us to be teachable, coachable, and submissive to your will. And Lord, to recognize your will, even if it means we don't come out on top, somebody else does. Jesus, we just want to ask that you would help us to be totally submissive to you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus and you need to know his forgiveness, I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk the aisle of this church and say, I want Jesus as my Lord. I want him as my Savior. I want to know his forgiveness and I want to know a relationship with him. I invite you to come. If you're here this morning and you sense that God's leading you to become part of our church family, calling you to be working with us here on his mission, then I invite you to come and become a part of our church family. And if you sense that the Lord's speaking to you this morning and saying, you know, I'm calling you into the ministry and I want you to surrender to that calling and follow me in that, even though it may seem scary, you can trust me, the Lord say, and I'll take care of you. It will be challenging, but it will be exciting. And I invite you to come. So that we as a congregation can pray for you and encourage you. In these moments now, let me submit it to the Lord and let him have his way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.